0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at FBCevansville.com. Persecution is defined as hostility, ill treatment, especially because of race, political, or religious beliefs. So the term persecution is accurate, describing what may be a reality for Christians in the U.S. in the near future. This way, Uh, We want to paint an accurate picture. We do want to confess that Christ is sovereign. We do not want to be chicken little and see persecution behind every bush. But we want to be realistic about this. So what might persecution look like? What might persecution look like? In the coming days, we don't know exactly what it's going to hold, but it could look like churches and ministries that refuse to recognize and perform same-sex marriages losing their tax-exempt status. And those with traditional views of marriage might, hmm, this is interesting, I seem to have lost a page. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, I'll blame it on my printer again. <clears throat> so those with traditional views, views on marriage may lose their voice in a public form. One newspaper in the U.S. has publicly stated that they will, quote, very strictly limit op-eds and letters to the editor in opposition to same-sex marriage. Those unions are now the law of the land, and we will not publish such letter and op-eds any more than we would publish those that are racist, sexist, or anti-Semitic. Then they backtrack from even the hardest stance taken initially. It's a sign of where we're headed. In view of several uh, situations, the First Amendment uh, is seen by some some only to protect your individual private thoughts. That protection ceases once those thoughts enter their public square. During the Obama administration, we began to hear references to religious liberty framed as freedom of worship. The freedom to worship is indeed included within the free exercise of religion, but to deliberately use that language is to imply that worship is where liberty ends, and that is not true. We are seeing religious liberty reduced even further. It is as if this new version of religious liberty is restricted to a citizen's cranium, merely a right to believe, which is ridiculous. Without any laws, I mean, you can be wherever you want and believe whatever you want in your head, and your cranium is the only viable real estate for religious expression within the thoughts of many in the public realm. The culture that once honored religious liberty and respected it as a bedrock freedom, even passing within most of our lifetimes here, a religious liberty addendum. That culture is no more. Religious liberty now attracts the glare of the cultural left who see religious liberty as an obstacle in the path of their social transformations. They view this freedom as a socially constructed institution of bigotry from which we must now liberate ourselves. Moreover, the rise of the LGBTQ movement now pits religious liberty against the newly constructed sexual liberty. These are two incompatible freedoms that necessarily collide. And even in the laws that were passed by the Supreme Court, it was acknowledged that where you have religious liberty and sexual liberty, sexual liberty will always win. Those are the words of the Supreme Court justices. Christian businesses which refuse to compromise deeply held beliefs could be punished with boycotts or loss of federal contract. We already have talked about some of those last week. Uh, We talked about um, some of the bakers, some of the florists, other businesses. The ACLU targeted... Harris Funeral Homes. Harris Funeral Homes is a 100-year-old privately held funeral business that has been ministering to families throughout Michigan, and it's owned by Tom Ross. Well, they've been awarded for their services. Preferred Funeral Directors, best hometown funeral home in the city of Detroit. In 2013, Tom was informed by one of his employees that although they had a dress code in their handbook, which, for the benefit of their clients being comfortable during a time of bereavement, everyone was expected to dress appropriately for their sex. One of their employees came forward and said that they were going to start presenting and dressing as a woman, even though they were a biologic male. That was a problem. It should have been an open and shut case. After all, They were following existing laws. Even the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has in their rule books that men should dress appropriately wearing shirts and ties and women should wear skirts. And yet, the ACLU was going after this funeral home. It happens. Christian adoption agencies might be forced to either place children with same-sex couples or cease operating. The ACLU is already looking at options to challenge existing laws. So faith-based adoption agencies will, who refuse to serve such prospective parents could totally be out of business. Religious schools will be open to lawsuits due to their stance on same-sex marriage when it comes to admissions, hiring, and student housing. We talked last week about the two schools that Kim and I went to, King's, and that our daughter went to, Gordon, who were under such scrutiny. Next, employees will lose jobs, either voluntary or otherwise, because they cannot conform to their employer's requirements of supporting same-sex marriage. And we've talked in the past how there was an employee at Holiday World who refused to use a female name for a male employee, even though the rules of Holiday World required that you would use their legal name. In that case, it was the male's name. And in my company, as many other companies, we are being trained to not be discriminatory with regard to sex, sexual identity, and gender bias. So, Some may balk at the idea of labeling those things as persecution. Certainly these things pale in comparison to physical persecution of our brothers, sisters in Christ, have faced in church history. The parliament in India this week is putting forth anti-conversion bills which would make it an extremely serious offense to be involved in any aspect of conversions. And radical Hindus there are pressing to ensure that if there's any way they can claim, never mind produce factual evidence, they will use that to persecute God's people. So, last week we talked about the reality of suffering. Bible regards suffering as part of the fallen world. Suffering falls on Christians and non-Christians alike. Because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve, the physical world itself was subject to Corruption and decay. We talked about our Savior, who is our Redeemer and suffering Servant. The Triune God does not allow us to waddle alone in the mire of our suffering through trials. We do not have an intercessor who is aloof, aloof and distant from our troubles. He is the very incarnation of benevolence, who understands our weaknesses, our suffering. And who endured the same in this world. So we come to a very patient and understanding high priest. Our Savior puts us through the fires of adversity to forge us in an alloyed relationship with himself. You know, We read from Second Corinthians chapter one. He even, he even uses our trials to comfort other people. Um, Sarah Gutierrez communicated to me that after her youngest son was born it was devastating as you might imagine hearing such news and a stranger who had heard about this called and comforted her based on her experience of her life situations and a trust in a living God total stranger it just illustrates that very powerful fact that you and I, when we go through things, it's not only to train and shape us and cause us to cry out to our Father of mercies, but to actually be instruments of that mercy to each other. You no, know, you think, you think about John and Carol Wells right now. Carol's having back problems. John has medical issues. And thankfully they have the resources to care for themselves in their home in addition to medical issues. But there are people within the congregation who are reaching out, helping with food, seeking to do things. Again, comforting those who are in distress. Our Heavenly Father is called the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. The Holy Spirit is comforter, completes the fullness of the Trinity as the one who comes to you in the midst of your suffering to strengthen you and give you courage, boldness, and compassion for others. We talked about the reasons for suffering. There are specific reasons for suffering. And the first one, of course, is our first love. We want to return to our first love. Suffering, chastening can do that. We also suffer and are comforted, as I mentioned, so that we can be used by the God of glory to comfort others. We suffer, letter C, to find our abundant comfort in Him. Sometimes it seems that life is full of trouble, inconvenience, and unending resistance to peace of mind. His comfort is not some sort of partial dispensing. I used the toothpaste analogy last week. You, know, you get to the end of the toothpaste tube, and you want to be good stewards of your money, and you're squeezing out that last little bit, and you get that teeny tiny... That's not how God dispenses his mercy <laughs> or his comfort, right? It's full. It's abundant. It's rich. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not with him freely give us what? All things. Right? Letter D, we suffer to be in fellowship with Christ, but also with each other. Letter E, God ordains our suffering to cause us to grow in patience and endurance. Letter, next letter is, we suffer so that thanksgiving will be given to our sovereign Lord. And we'll talk more about that today as he delivers us from those persecutions and suffering. Now, all of that to bring us to the next of our five R's. We had the reality, the redeemer, the reasons, and today reclamation of suffering. Reclamation of suffering. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Turn in your Bibles Or on your devices to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, please. We're going to see more reasons that God gives to these seemingly unanswerable questions. We suffer so that God's power would be seen by others and experienced by us personally. The loss of a little one. The loss of an aged parent sickness, how hot it's going to be when your air conditioning fails. Right? We suffer so that God's power will be seen by others and experienced by us personally. Have you ever thought of that, really? In our weakness, God's resurrection power transforms and strengthens us to be able to endure. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Why? Why? So that the surpassing greatness of the power of God will be of him and not from ourselves. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Paul goes on, he says, we're afflicted in every way. We're not crushed. We're perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. What does Paul mean here when he says that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves? What does he mean here? God's power, not our own. We cannot do it on our own. Anyone else? Excellent. Excellent. To eliminate every possibility of boasting. How does Paul describe us here? How does he describe you and me? And if you say that he describes me as a crackpot, you'd be right. We're a vessel. Excellent. Excellent. We are his vessel. Think about that. <clears throat> what was the container that the dead sea scrolls were contained in. Do you remember? Do you remember the story? A clay jar, right? And this kid was throwing rocks. And he threw a rock into a cave and he heard the clay jar breaking. And so this treasure of God's word that gave such incredible validity and confirmation as to the accuracy of his word that we carry with us was carried in this clay vessel. And we are like that. Paul uses that expression to specifically state that, you know, this, we are frail. We are fragile. And it is so that, you know, the gospel would be exhibited as this phenomenal power of God so that everyone would see that not we, but God is the source. God's power is revealed to human beings who, in the eyes of the world, are of no account. Who were the apostles? How were the apostles viewed? What did people think of the apostles when they began to talk about these incredible things? Unlearned men. These stupid fishermen. How many of you in here are fishermen? How many of you? I'm not going to ask if you're stupid fishermen. But, you know, they they were despised. Shepherds. The glory of God in the Incarnation was given to shepherds. You know, you read... Hebrews, the hall of faith, right? And what do, how, how are these people described, these martyrs? They were people of whom the world was not worthy. Uneducated people. Paul is unimpressive in his speech, right? He's unimpressive in his appearance. One, uh, one account, I forget where it's called. If Bryce Biel is in here, he'll probably recall the, uh, the author and the... Uh, the page on which it was written, they describe him as some hook-nosed Jew, just despised. Christ himself was despised. His appearance was marred more than any man, right? But these treasures of God are seen through the frailty of humanity. The Apostle Paul was used in the conversion of many, the foundation of many congregations and giving us these epistles (laughs) that ended up in a clay pot being hit by some random stone (laughs) to verify the accuracy of God's word. Yeah? Amazing. Look at verse 10. 2 Corinthians 4.10 Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. Again, this is a reclamation of suffering. Suffering is not just simply some despised part of life that you have to grin and bear and endure with gritted teeth. What does it mean when the Apostle Paul says, we are carrying about in our body the dying of Jesus? Jesus. What could that possibly mean? Yes, Randy. I believe it means that as we realize that he died, he died for us. And that died, his died made us kind of blossom and help us. Excellent. Randy is saying that his death. His dying, His suffering, enabled us to blossom, grow, and flourish. You had a... I'm sorry, say it again. That we may be servants. It's exactly right. It's a conflation of both of those things. Christ died and suffered. We reflect in our dying and our suffering in this body of flesh. We are reflecting the reality that He went through. And as we do that, as we do that, verse 10, so the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. Paul illustrated this quite well, didn't he? I mean, think about what he went through. And he illustrated the grace of God, the power of God, the, the resurrection power by some of the things that he went through. Paul is willing to endure all of that for the sake of the publication, the demonstration, the announcement, the proclamation, being the harbinger of life-giving power found in the gospel of Christ. That makes sense? Let's go to verse 11 here. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. And why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith... According to what was written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. So Paul here in verse 11 willingly delivers himself to our Lord and his cause so that in the perishable condition of his own people, our own bodies, and I think it was Joseph Gallant yesterday, as he was helping with this landscaping project, said when he gets up, his body curses him every morning. (laughs) Some of us experience that more than others. You know, the creaking, the moaning, the groaning, the pain, the discomfort. Um, Christ, through his people, reveals the reality of his resurrection. The risen Savior our Lord Jesus is displayed and carried through our frail mortal bodies and lives now. Let's go to verse 15. 2 Corinthians 4.15 begins wonderfully because Paul says that it's not just some martyrdom, some opportunity to complain. He says, beginning in verse 15, for these things are what? Who are they for? Okay. Therefore your sakes, they're for our sakes. Therefore, our sakes, why? So that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Now, it's for our sakes that sufferings should happen for the purpose of God's grace in Christ, impacting many with the result that there's thanksgiving to God. You know, so Spurgeon, when he's converted, wanted to run out and tell the crows. <laughs> You know, you, when you were converted, maybe wanted in fear and trembling to go tell your family that was involved in a religion that relied on works. You wanted to tell them, hey, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And you wanted to do it to praise God and so that they would catch the fire. Right? All right. We're not despondent, but we glory in our Redeemer. And that is the reclamation of suffering. There's a higher purpose. There's a higher goal. This is a noble thing, and it's why we don't throw ourselves a pity party each time. We entrust ourselves to our Savior who does right. And that leads us to the final R, which is the response to suffering. The response to suffering as we look at this issue we should avoid two extremes one is shoulder shrugging, oh well start channeling your inner Eeyore okay we might as well put up with it we're all gloom and doom Eeyore is your hero okay brother you need a new hero Uh, You know, a mentality that nothing will ever change, there's nothing good going to come out of this, is not honoring to God. It's, 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 it's fully understandable that we fall into that, isn't it? And we all do that sometimes. But the other extreme is to declare that the suffering of common disgrace or of special grace spells certain doom for an individual, a, fellow lo- sh- uh, a local fellowship or a church at large. We cannot forget the fact that Christianity is supposed to be countercultural on a personal level, on a corporate level, and within our culture. As Christians, we should look to the one who holds the future rather than worrying about what the future holds. So, how then should we not live but suffer? Maybe that's the title of my next book. I don't know. How then should we suffer? What should be our response? Give me some practical answers here. Graceful? Gracefully. All right. Genesis, Not always. Talking about trials. Count it all joy. Count it all joy. I read Hebrews 12 this morning talking about Jesus. Hebrews 12. Joy set Who for the joy set before him the cross. And, yep, and endured the cross. Set his face like flint toward the cross. What else? How should we respond? What do the scriptures tell us? Because that's, that's where we're going right now. Yes? We should suffer in community and not alone. In community, with God. In community and not alone. Bear one another's burdens. Good. Excellent. Yes? Well, there is. There is that suffering in doing it well. That should be a part. You're absolutely right, Josh. Yes, David. Uh, to the glory of God. It's not about us. Yeah, to the glory of God, it's not about us. It's for His good. So, let's, let's do it. Un- unfortunately, suffering and persecution here in the U.S. or across the globe is not something that is avoidable. And unfortunately, I've fallen into that mentality that I'm a child of the King. Why should I suffer? Thankfully, my theology changed from there. It is something that Christians will deal with throughout the ages. Yes, Joel. If you read Ephesians 2, 9, and 10 talk about the good things, the works that we should walk in, which includes suffering. And how we respond. So, when we face suffering trials or experience opposition because of the faith, remember, we're talking about both, right? General suffering and specific persecution. It's tempting to throw the pity party. Some continually publicize their own praise or criticism. That doesn't mean we can't respond to criticism or defend ourselves, but there's something distasteful about the Christian who can only talk about how bad things have gotten or how much they have suffered. Yes, there are some who are Eeyore, you know, and that we understand we're going to be patient, gentle, and loving with those folks, you know, but we're not meant to be complainers. We're not meant to be complacent. The key to understanding and thriving through persecution is in reacting as Christ did. Christ did not seek revenge on his enemies, but rather he was called to turn the other cheek. When Christ was on the cross, he prayed for forgiveness. We can do the same. Christians are different from others in the world, and those who are different tend to get alienated and become the object of scorn. How many of you have ever raised chickens? I see those hands. All right. White chickens. Is there a particular name for that breed? I know there are bantams and white chickens. Okay, white chickens. That's what their technical term is, white chickens. We're getting our poultry education in Sunday school. <laughs> Hopefully it's not too paltry. Hopefully it's poultry. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, uh, there's a phenomenon that some of you who've been around chickens may have seen. If a chicken, for whatever reason, has a red spot, if a white chicken has a red spot on their feathers, what will happen to that chicken? It'll die die because the other chickens will peck that thing to death. That is the world with the Christian. There's something different, and the world hates God, the world hates Christ, and will go after that believer. Yes, followers of Christ have been persecuted from the beginning, but we can grow and overcome this negativity and this negative mindset. Standing up for what we know is true, sharing Christ with others, ignoring as much as possible those who want to put us down. There are ways to indeed prepare for suffering as a Christian. And there are four points that we want to make today. Four points in the remainder of our time. First, Christian workers need to examine their own hearts and searching for any sense of entitlement. You and I need to search our own hearts to discover if there's any pride, any arrogance, any entitlement. Paul advised Timothy that God's people need to be prepared to share in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God. That's 2 Timothy 1.8. They will do this not by cultivating stoicism or asceticism, but by concentrating long and hard on the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord, who is better, more valuable, and more delightful than anything we lose. So number one, we need to examine our own hearts, searching for any sense of entitlement, arrogance, foolishness, that we brought this suffering on ourselves rather than it being for his righteousness sake. Number two, we need to share the gospel the way Jesus did by making the cost of discipleship clear. We need to make the cost of discipleship clear. What did Christ say was the cost of discipleship? Life We are to what? Pick up a cross. cross. Follow him. People who have been given a realistic sense of what it means to follow Jesus and who have counted the cost will make much steadier disciples. Much steadier disciples. Remember the parable of the soils? Right? One of the soils, it grew up immediately, but then when what happened? They fell away. Cares of the world. Persecution, right? There needs to be a realistic explanation of the gospel. It's not that we're going to be happy, happy, happy all the time, time, time. But we need to be realistic, combining the joy, the promise, the blessing of following Christ with the great opportunity that we have to represent him in the world through difficulties and hardships. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that draws people to Jesus. Not our attractive packaging of the message. Number three. We need to include the subject of suffering well in our immediate follow-up with new believers. They can use their experiences as here we go. um, Arts, we talked about that. See here? There we are. There we are. Uh, We need to, uh, they are to use their experiences, suffering as a basis for comforting others who suffer, like we talked about earlier, right? Next, we need to see the opportunity to endure suffering without compromising integrity. We need to endure suffering without compromising integrity. Oh, I'm losing my order here. That that evil printer of mine. Is that it again? <clears throat> well, we'll go to, uh, they need to endure suffering without compromising their integrity. Uh, let's see here. Looks like I may have missed one in my preparation here, for which I apologize. Yeah, it may be totally my mistake and not my printer. Are you us to suffer? Yes. That's right. All right. <clears throat> so some of those blank spaces. Uh, we need to endure suffering without compromising our integrity. Um, Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, If anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. According to the rules. We must not compromise our integrity. In 1 Peter 2.18, Peter who has a lot to say about suffering, says this, This finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure with patience. So the idea is you want to do what is right and suffer for it. That is worthy of glorying to Christ. Now, next point would be when we suffer, we can use the opportunity to suffer. I'm just going to go ahead and put these all up here for you. That way, if I hit one of them, we're, we're ahead of the game. <clears throat> use the opportunity to grow in holiness, witness with boldness, and identify with our Lord and reflect his mercy. Let's go to First Peter chapter 3. There are a bunch of verses here that are quite helpful. First Peter chapter 3, and let's look at verse 13. So if you turn your copy of God's Word, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And then to the point of integrity, next verse, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. You are loved. You are part of of God's affections. Do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. And then he says the famous verse, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready. Have you ever realized that that's a verse in the context of suffering? It's a verse in the context of suffering, for your faith. The defense of the gospel And proclaiming the gospel is in the context of suffering. And how are we to do it? The end of verse 15. With gentleness and reverence. To the people you can tolerate? No. To everyone who asks you. You know? And then again with integrity. Verse 17. It is better if God should will it. You suffer for doing what is right rather than what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. we suffer as the Lord did, not because we're troublesome meddlers. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. Then he continues. He says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same purpose. And this is to the point of holiness. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Your suffering... And my suffering is designed by our creator to drive us not only to Christ for his love, his comfort, but also to drive us to purify ourselves, to kill the flesh. You you hear it talked about so much that the churches in heavily physically persecuted areas pray for us in the United States. Because we don't know the purging, cleansing nature of suffering. And they're concerned about our holiness and our integrity. It's pretty sobering. Look at verse 4 there, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4. In all this, they, those who are in opposition, those who persecute, are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. Now how many of you here have been mocked, called names? Rumors told about you because you weren't going to go out and do certain things? No? Praise the Lord. <laughs> yes, Dan. Yeah. It's about dying to sin. Yeah. <clears throat> exactly. That's exactly right. We are to die to sin. And that's, you know, verse, verse 2 there. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 1. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What, what Darren? You're shaking your head. Wow. <laughs> ceased from sin. This is part of God's glorious sanctification process. Followers of Jesus, one of my next bullet points, that's somewhere. Followers of Jesus should not be surprised or caught off guard by suffering, and they are commanded to rejoice. 1 Peter 4, go down to verse 12. Don't be surprised. At the fire ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of Christ, you are uh, at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, not for foolishness, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. As followers of Christ. We do not rejoice in suffering because we enjoy pain but because Christ is so worthy in our eyes and ears that we delight in being identified with him. When the men walked out of the prison after being scourged what did they rejoice about? That they were considered worthy to suffer on his behalf. Have we totally grasped this? No, but that's why we're studying this because this was part of the Corinthian church. Paul was preparing them for worse times to come. It is part of our responsibility to each other to recognize how God in his word instructs us, equips us, enables us, models for us from his word, from his people, what to do when either the common suffering or the targeted persecution comes we're to trust God in the middle of our suffering and respond by proactively doing good 1 Peter 4.19 let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right and then they are to fix their eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. <clears throat> we're also to love our persecutors, pray for their welfare. Matthew chapter 5. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. No, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Not easy, but we're commanded to do it. Next, we are to renounce any intention to take revenge. Romans 12. And verse 17, never pay back evil to evil for anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If it possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace. Verse 19, never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And then, that's right, verse 20 and 21, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Thirsty, give him a drink. In doing so, you heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. And the last bullet point in this section is uh, that you want to not only renounce any attention, take revenge, but also stand for truth. You want to stand for truth. That means resolving to not compromise our principles, to be accepted by the world. Such a fear of men will make shipwreck of faith and will reach... No one with the truth of the gospel. Now, number four, and again I apologize because it doesn't look like we have number four there. Number four is you may seek protection through legitimate means. You may need to seek protection through legitimate means. In Luke's gospel, Jesus tells the story of a woman who will not give up to illustrate the need for persistence in prayer. A widow seeks justice against someone who has exploited her, and she's not going to let the judge rest. Jesus did not denigrate this woman's concerns. In Exodus 22 and Deuteronomy 10, there are biblical injunctions of how to treat widows justly and how to provide legal remedy for them. Paul actually resorted to the law twice when he was wrongfully arrested as a Roman citizen. He also used the threat of law in Acts 16 and verse 37. Much of our injury law, called tort law in the United States, is actually based on Bible verses. In the book of Exodus, a person would be held liable for having a bull that was known to be vicious. If a person created a situation that was known to be dangerous and he was negligent, then he would be liable for the damages. Exodus 21, the open pit, the parapet around the roof, all right? A negligent person or business has legal responsibilities to which they must adhere. Many other situations resulting in injury to another caused by actions of someone also resulted in financial responsibility in the scriptures. So, in what circumstances and how can someone, even in light of everything we've said concerning suffering and persecution, in what circumstances and how can someone legitimately seek protection for themselves? This is a very important question. Yes, Joel. Is it, is it wrong for us as Christians to our family and our household from the suffering of something caused by breaking and entering a crime? I don't see any problem with that at all. There are some people who would say you shouldn't resist evil. But yet, you know, the Scripture has f- many examples of being able to protect those who are in harm's way. Yes. You can do and pray. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes, Rick Berger. <clears throat> I'm sorry, could you say it a little louder, please? Yeah, well, there, there are a couple of principles here. Letter A. Seek wise counsel to help determine legitimacy and to sort out your intentions, your emotions, and your thinking. Again, if you're just being crabby, if you're being unnecessarily contentious, you, know, you may need to be the one to change. Because sometimes our feelings get out of sorts. And sometimes we are resentful. Letter B. Communicate with the individual alone or with witnesses. If it's a work matter, a neighbor matter, and someone has a grief, someone has a beef, communicate with them alone or with witnesses. If you fear being intimidated, if you fear retaliation, bring along a witness. Contact the police if you need to have that discussion. Get an intermediate. Letter C, leave. If you're in a job where you're being suffered unrighteously, where you're suffering unrighteously, and you can get a better job where you're not being abused, leave. If you can find another job, it's better to be free. Letter D, engage legal protection as appropriate for defensive purposes. Now I said that, I, I, I'm saying that carefully. We're not going to retaliate. We're not going to look for great legal recourse for pain and emotional suffering. Defensive purposes. Someone is exploiting you. Someone has defrauded you. Someone has taken money that's not theirs. Someone is seeking you harm. Engage legal protection. If you're a woman, and your spouse is abusing you. Seek legal protection. Follow some of these other things. Spousal abuse is a serious matter. And if you know, we hear about it as elders at Faith Bible Church, as leaders, we're going to follow appropriate measures to ensure that ye, the, the individual is protected. All right? There's a whole discussion that's behind that. letter E, and this is to Joel's point, it is not wrong to defend ourselves against physical, mental, or financial abuse. In any of these items, though, we should be prepared for the consequences of these decisions. If we leave, there's a consequence. If we seek legal protection, there's a consequence. So, just some guidelines. Prayerfully, Consider these things. If you need help sorting these things out in the situation you're suffering with, seek wise counsel. Let's see what happens to the glory of God. Yes, Dad? You still have to <clears throat> Yep. What I just said here does not eliminate everything I said previously. But because there are people who are abused, and because we have seen people in our fellowship that have been abused it is extremely important for me as one of the leaders of this church to say what I just said. Because we do not want anyone here thinking that we are going to encourage, for example, wives to be abused by their husbands. Next week, Beau Falk is going to be leading our adult Christian ed. And he's going to be talking about Faithfulness, one of the key issues that Paul addresses in all of his letters, but especially to the Corinthians, is that of faithfulness in life, in culture, personally, corporately, and then our last lesson will be on our hope, because Paul addresses that as well. Let's close with prayer. Father, I do thank you for this time. I thank you for the opportunity to examine this topic as difficult as it is as challenging as it is Lord we pray that Christ would be exalted that he would be seen as the resolution of our issues that we would fix our eyes upon him that we would seek your wisdom in all of these situations and Lord that you would indeed be the purpose the highlight the resolution of our suffering that it would be reclaimed for your honor and your glory, that we would seek to suffer in such a way that the Lord Jesus is honored and magnified. We thank you in his name. Amen.